Hello, I'm James Saunders. And I'm Chris Snell. On this episode, we will be discussing the recent Court of Appeal judgment in Lex Law and Zaberi, in which Chris appeared for the successful respondent. The case has been widely noted as a positive step forward for DBAs, but what exactly is a DBA? What did the Court of Appeal decide? And what are the implications of the decision? Starting with the fundamentals, Chris, what is a DBA? A DBA ought to be a relatively easy to define concept, but unfortunately the Court of Appeal couldn't agree as to the answer of what a DBA is. The majority of the Court of Appeal, Lord Justices Lewison and Coulson, decided that a damages-based agreement is that part of a solicitor's retainer which deals with its right to recover its fees from the damages ultimately awarded to the successful party. Dissenting from that decision, Lord Justice Newey took the position that a damages-based agreement is in fact the entirety of a solicitor's retainer if that retainer includes a right to recover fees from the damages ultimately recovered by the litigant. And so there is a fundamental difference in reasoning and conclusion between the Court of Appeal, the majority's view being simply that a DBA is only a part of the solicitor's retainer, whereas Lord Justice Newey's view being that a DBA is the entirety of the contingent fee arrangement. So it's fair to say that there was a disagreement between the members of the court as to what a DBA was precisely. But what were the issues that were actually in play in the Lex Law decision? The primary issue between Lex Law and Mrs. Zaberry related to the enforceability of Lex Law's retainer in light of the damages-based agreement regulations 2013. Regulations in Regulation 4 broadly provide that a solicitor's retainer cannot provide for the recovery of fees other than calculated in a certain way and subject to a certain cap. For the benefit of our listeners who are not familiar with the DBA regs 2013, and in particular the much maligned Regulation 4, that regulation provides as follows. A damages-based agreement must not require an amount to be paid by the client other than one of two amounts. The first is the payment that has been paid or is payable by another party to the proceedings by agreement or order. That payment is to be net of any costs and, where relevant, any sum in respect of disbursements incurred by the representative in respect of counsel's fees. The other possible charge is for any expenses incurred by the representative net of any amount which has been paid or is payable by another party to the proceedings once again by agreement or order. The Court of Appeal expressly drew attention to the difference between Regulation 8 and Regulation 4. Regulation 4 expressly excludes employment matters, whereas Regulation 8 covers those matters. In Regulation 8, the regulations expressly provide for what costs can be charged when an agreement is terminated. That clarity of provision is sadly lacking in Regulation 4, and that is really what gave rise to the problems facing the Court of Appeal in this case. Mrs Zaberry argued that because Lex Law's retainer included a clause which allowed it to charge fees by reference to hourly rates in the event that she terminated the retainer early, Lex Law were in breach of the regulations and therefore the entirety of its retainer was unenforceable. It was a problem that was known. Many of the leading costs textbooks and indeed the authors of the White Book 
had flagged that Regulation 4 was ill-drafted and that potentially termination fees were unlawful by reason of Regulation 4. And in turn, that had led to a small uptake in the use of DBAs in the solicitor's profession in general. The main issue then was whether or not the clause permitting termination fees had the effect of rendering the entire retainer unenforceable. So in terms, Chris, of addressing the legislative framework for DBAs, we of course have Section 58AA of the Courts and Legal Services Act 1990, which deals with DBAs. And there have been numerous iterations of damages-based agreement regulations made under that act, the most recent of which being the 2013 regulations, and those are the ones that the Court of Appeal were concerned with in your case. In terms of the uncertainty that came out of those regulations, and you've talked about Regulation 4, How did the court ultimately address that uncertainty? The primary way in which the court addressed that uncertainty was by considering what approach to the correct interpretation of the legislation it ought to adopt. And the court, Lord Justice Lewison in particular, took the view that the court must adopt a purposive approach when interpreting the regulations. And that was certainly something that he's alluded to in a number of his more recent judgments in the Court of Appeal. That contrasted directly with the position that the appellant took in that the appellant sought a literalist black letter lawyer interpretation of the regulations. Lord Justice Lewison issued that in fairly short order and held that the court had to look at the purpose behind the legislation and the purpose behind the legislation and behind regulation four in particular by reference to the Hansard debates and some of the early working papers, was very clearly, in Lord Justices Lewison's Newey and Coulson's view, not to regulate the issue of termination at all, but in fact solely to deal with the maximum percentage of damages that a solicitor could recover in the event that his or her client was successful in their litigation. So is it fair to say, Chris, that despite the members of the court disagreeing about what a DBA was, all of the Court of Appeal members agreed that termination fees were not intended to be caught by the 2013 regulations? It's definitely right that all members of the court come to the same conclusion, as you say, namely that termination fees are not the subject of regulation at all. But the way in which the various members of the court got to that conclusion differed. Lord Justices Coulson and Lewison get there in the same way, and Lord Justice Newey prefers a different route to the same conclusion. Chris, given that the members of the Court of Appeal reached the same conclusion in different ways, do you foresee their difference in reasoning causing any problems in the future, or is the the unison of conclusion enough to go by? In terms of the issue of termination, the unison of conclusion is enough to go by. The difference in opinion and the difference in route that led to the conclusion in respect of termination is likely to have an impact on one key issue, which is the legality of the use of hybrid DBAs. All of the Court of Appeal were unanimous in their decision that there would be nothing wrong with what they termed a sequential DBA. That would be a contingent fee agreement where part of the work was paid for on a hourly rate basis up to a certain point in the litigation. And thereafter, the remainder of the work was done on a contingent fee basis. But the implication of the disagreement as to what a DBA in fact is gives rise to a difference in view as to whether or not what the court calls concurrent hybrid DBAs would in fact be permitted by the legislation. 
So the majority's view, Coulson and Lewison, leads to the conclusion that concurrent hybrid DBAs would be permitted under the legislation. They get there simply by coming to the conclusion that Regulation 4 doesn't deal with termination at all. In fact, their view was it is solely intended to deal with A, the cap on the amount of damages that a solicitor can take from his successful client, and B, Regulation 4 subregulation 1, in their view, is intended to deal with what's commonly called the Ontario model, which is in effect a netting off provision to prevent the solicitor from being unjustly enriched by keeping both the costs that they recover from the other side and also the full percentage of damages that they've contracted to take from their clients. Lord Justice Newey thought that that was an impermissible approach. Looking back through the legislative history, it was his view that Parliament had intended solely to allow for a contingent fee basis, such that if the court went so far as to say that Regulation 4 did not deal with charging at all and was intended to allow concurrent hybrid DBAs, if he took that argument to the nth degree and took it at its most extreme, he thought that it would lead to a perverse conclusion, which was that a solicitor could in fact contract to be paid on a full-time cost basis plus on a percentage basis, which eschewed the notion that a hybrid concurrent DBA would be permissible under the regulations. So the short answer is it leaves a significant amount of uncertainty as to the use of concurrent hybrid DBAs albeit the majority view is that they are permissible. So hybrid DBAs, Chris, are one particular source of potential uncertainty going forwards. Are there any other uncertainties left by the decision in your view? But not necessarily left by the decision, but certainly there is another uncertainty arising out of the way in which Regulation 4, Subregulation 1 is drafted. And that is insofar as it provides that the solicitor has to net off where they have the benefit of a cost order making the other side liable for costs. And the way in which the regulation is drafted specifically provides that the solicitor has to give credit where there are costs payable or becoming payable by the other side. The difficulty is a situation whereby a solicitor and or litigant obtains a favourable cost order, but ultimately that cost order is unenforceable against the paying party. In that situation, on a literalist reading and interpretation of subregulation 1 to regulation 4, even though the cost order is unenforceable, the solicitor still has to give credit for it. That's one of the uncertainties. The likely outcome, it seems to me, looking at the purpose of the regulations and the historical context, is that the court would interpret that regulation in much the same way as it did in Lex Law and Zaberi. That's to say it would look at it purposefully. And it's relatively clear that the aim behind the regulation and the aim behind bringing in damages-based agreements was not to require the solicitor to take both the litigation risk and the credit risk, but merely to require the solicitor to take the litigation risk. The credit risk lies, in my view, firmly with the client. So in the event that you have an opponent who cannot pay, the solicitor still ought to be able to recover its fees from the damages ultimately awarded. So we don't have complete certainty still on the topic of DBAs, but the decision in Lex Law has been widely viewed as a positive step forward for this form of solicitor's retainer. What appeal do you think there is in DBAs for practitioners? 
The primary appeal for practitioners is that it allows them to market to clients a more attractive contingent fee option than has otherwise been available to them, most certainly since CFA uplifts have been deemed to be unrecoverable from opponents in litigation. The way in which the DBA regulations are drafted and the related civil procedure rules mean that In essence, a successful client who has the benefits of a DBA could achieve a net zero effect, whereby they recover all of the money from their opponents that they would otherwise be liable to pay their solicitor under DBA out of their damages, such that their solicitor has to give credit for the same amount as against the percentage of damages that they would ordinarily take, meaning that In essence, the client has the benefit of a contingent fee agreement, but keeps 100% of its damages and the solicitor is paid in full on the basis of what it contracted for. So it's a more attractive proposition, it seems to me, for clients. There's also the other perhaps more obvious benefit, which is that a solicitor is paid by reference to a fixed percentage of the damages, regardless of when the case settles. So in the event of a case settling at an early stage in proceedings, the solicitor would still be entitled to its fixed percentage, even though perhaps as much work hasn't been done as may have been had the case gone all the way to trial. And one can contrast that position against a CFA if the solicitor had been conducting the litigation on the basis of a CFA and it settles at an early point, their fee recovery is limited because of the limited amount of work that they'd have carried out to that point. So there's potentially a significant appeal to DBAs for practitioners, but is it fair to say, in your view, Chris, that there are still ways in which DBAs could be held to be invalid or go wrong? And if so, what can solicitors do about those risks? There's certainly always the risk that a DBA could be held to be unenforceable. DBA could be unenforceable if it includes a provision that offends any of regulations one through to four, certainly in the context of civil litigation. So a DBA could, for instance, be invalid and unenforceable if it required the client to pay more than 50% of his damages by way of fee to the solicitor or if it allowed the solicitor to keep more than 50% of the ultimate damages by some other mechanism. There are also certain procedural requirements and prescriptive requirements that are set out in Regulation 3 that would need to be adhered to. So in the event that some of those are, are not adhered to, the DBA may well become unenforceable. As to what can be done, If there is anybody that does have a unenforceable DBA, there are essentially two potential remedies that they might have. The first is severance, and that's something that Lex Law pleaded in its case, and it's addressed quite briefly at the start of Lord Justice Lewison's judgment. And the second and perhaps more difficult area is restitution and whether or not a party with an unenforceable DBA retains the right to claim a quantum merit sum in restitution. What do you think the position might be there? Restitution as a possible route around a DBA being invalid? There's an old line of authorities in relation to conditional fee agreements, which suggests that it's against public policy for the court to allow a solicitor who has an unenforceable contingent fee agreement to make a claim in quantum merit for his fees. 
That said, those authorities are historic and no doubt public policy has moved on since that time. And certainly that's something that Lord Justice Lewison acknowledges at the start of his judgment, that there is likely to have been a shift in policy. And it may well be, as was suggested, certainly by leading counsel for the Bar Council during the course of the hearing, that those cases are now ripe for revisiting by the court. Well, thank you very much, Chris. That brings us to the end of this episode of Brief Tapes. Thank you for taking us through the implications of Lex Law and Duberry. And thank you very much for listening.